0: Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're continuing our somewhat slow march through the book. And so we've arrived at this chapter where things are going to start uh, changing a little bit from what we've been looking at with Saul's failures. This marks a a very distinct change from the previous chapters. Just while you finish flipping there, uh, I want to ask you a question. Where does a good reputation come from? Reputation is very important in this life, and it doesn't matter whether you ask the world that or a believer, you'll get the same answer, that both will say that it is important. Proverbs 22.1 says that a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. In Scripture, the Christian and non-Christian alike can recognize a good reputation, So the difference between the worldly and the biblical understanding of a good reputation is in the source. The world would place the source of a good reputation in the demeanor, the skill, or the abilities of the persons themselves. But Scripture recognizes the true source of a good name. One can only have a good reputation if the Lord is with you and blesses you with one. Favor with man is a direct result of true favor from god and because favor comes from the lord we must pursue his grace with that introduction let's read first samuel 16 beginning in verse 1 the lord said to samuel how long will you grieve over saul since i have rejected him from being king over israel fill your horn with oil and go Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, behold, or behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who was skillful in playing the liar. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who was skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. So this chapter, it follows an interesting structure where the first half really parallels the second. And there's really a three-step pattern in each of those two sections. So first, we see an opening statement about God. And then second, there is a problem that then leads to a solution. And then third, David is set apart at the end of both of those two sections. And so our two points are going to be following those two parallels through. So the first point is favor in God's sight. So this section runs from verse 1 through 13. And we see the statement about God immediately in the opening verse, verse 1. And he's speaking to Samuel. And his message to the prophet tells us that Samuel was grieving over something. He was deeply saddened that Saul had failed and had been rejected as king by the Lord. He wrote he was sorrowful for Saul and he was sorrowful for the Israelite people, his own people. Now I'm sure he was also concerned about what Saul's rejection meant for the future of the nation. So we're not sure how long Samuel had been going on like this, but according to the word of the Lord, it had been too long by this point. The Hebrew verb shows that Samuel was continually grieving. And this is sharply contrasted with how the Lord dealt with Saul's situation. While Samuel was continually grieving, God had declared finally and totally that he had rejected Saul. And the word for rejected is in the perfect tense. It shows its finality, its definiteness. So the Lord had already decided that Saul was rejected and nothing was going to change that at this point. His will had been declared. And so grieving over Saul, it was no longer appropriate. But far from being a harsh rebuke on Samuel, we see that God was actually very gentle with Samuel here. He said, fill your horn with oil and go. So rather than punishment, this is more of a, why are you upset? You have work to do. Come on, let's go. So God had a plan and it's already underway. So Samuel didn't need to grieve anymore. The nation was not going to suffer under Saul for very long because God had already chosen a new king from the tribe of Judah among Jesse's sons. We see that Samuel Or, sorry, Samuel was to go and find God's chosen man. He was to go find him. He was to anoint him, just as he had previously anointed Saul. Samuel was grieved that the anointed king had been rejected, but now he will get to anoint a new king, one who will not be rejected as Saul had been. So when Samuel had anointed Saul, he had used a flask of oil, we're told in the text. But now, when he anoints this new king, he must use a horn. Now, that may seem like a small difference. But we've noted before that in Hannah's prayer in chapter 2, it functions as an introduction to the themes of the whole book of 1 Samuel. And while that difference between flask and horn may not seem important, it actually is in this book. The horn is a symbol of strength, a symbol of power. And all the way back in chapter 2, verse 10, Hannah prayed that the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king And exalt the horn of his anointing. So, because of disobedience, Saul had been rejected. But now the Lord had selected someone better than Saul, someone who was after his own heart, a man after his own heart. And this better neighbor would be strengthened by the Lord himself in a way that Saul never was. And the point in this is not that the new king will be great on his own because of who he is but that the Lord will work to establish and preserve him. So God is doing a mighty work, and so it is time to get moving. So now that we've addressed the first portion where God speaks, now we can look at the problem and the solution of this section. So by this point in time, it was apparent that Saul had become a tyrant in Israel, already rejected by God as the legitimate king he was clearly on the lookout for any threat to his crown. And Saul was willing to do whatever he needed to hold on to his power. And therefore, Samuel was understandably afraid here. He knew that if Saul caught him anointing someone else, he would be killed. Saul had fallen to the point where he would be willing to kill the most prominent prophet and spiritual leader in all of Israel, if need be. Those who hold power always fear to lose it, and Saul was no different. So for Samuel to go on his assigned mission to Bethlehem, what adds to the dangers that he would have had to pass right through, or at the very least around Gibeah, the home of Saul. So if Saul caught Samuel going on into the territory of Judah, where the kings of Israel were already had been prophesied to come from, and Samuel has a horn of oil in hand, well, I think even Saul could fit those pieces together as to what was going on. So Samuel needs to anoint a son of Jesse as the future king, but Saul is in the way. And this is the problem of this section, which needs to be solved. And unsurprisingly, the solution to the problem comes directly from the Lord himself. He told Samuel, take a heifer with you to sacrifice. Now, at this point, Samuel already went throughout Israel to sacrifice in many different locations. He went to rebuke sin. He went to preside over feasts. It was a fairly normal thing to see Samuel take a sacrifice and go on through rural cities to offer sacrifice. But this was a perfect cover, and mostly because it was Samuel's job to really, truly offer a sacrifice. But it's also a very ironic command from the Lord. You may remember that last chapter, Saul disobeyed God, and he allowed the army to keep some of the Amalekites' livestock that was supposed to have been completely destroyed. He had been afraid of the people, and he was greedy, and so he allowed the people to disobey, and they kept the livestock. And when he had been confronted by Samuel about that sin, he gave excuses. First, he was afraid of the people, but second, the animals were to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. It was for a good reason that he disobeyed. Now, both were bad excuses. And now Samuel, afraid of what Saul might do to him, needs a solution. And the Lord, who who appears to have a sense of humor here, tells Samuel to conceal what he was doing with the excuse of offering a sacrifice. So Saul disobeyed God's command, claiming sacrifice because of fear of the people. But now Samuel obeys God's command to sacrifice to protect him from Saul. And this book is really just full of these ironies and contrasts. And interestingly, protecting Samuel from Saul was not the only result of this heifer and sacrifice. The elders in the town of Bethlehem, they saw this premier prophet approaching unannounced to their town and with an animal that could be used as an offering to cover unsolved murder. And there are several other issues that it could be used for. So when they saw Samuel coming towards them with this sacrifice, they were terrified. They thought something was wrong. And it's so ironic that they asked Samuel if he came in peace. He was there to anoint the future king of Israel, the man after God's own heart. He was there for their peace as well as all of Israel's peace and prosperity. But Samuel couldn't tell them any of that just yet. And so instead, they thought they were about to get rebuked or that they were about to have legal action taken against them by this prophet. And this produced two outcomes that further helped Samuel on this mission. First, the fear of God was on these elders, and so they were not about to cause a problem or rat out Samuel to Saul. On the contrary, they had to worry about consecrating themselves for a sacrifice and a feast. Now also, it provided Samuel with the opportunity to have Jesse and his sons consecrated and invited to the feast without anyone raising an eyebrow. The elders' fear allowed everything to fall into place. Perfectly. And this is clear proof that God was sovereign over the entire situation, blessing Samuel's mission. The Lord brought all of these pieces together into place, completely neutralizing the danger of Saul to this whole operation. So now we arrive at the final phase of this section, where the future king is then set apart. So Jesse and his sons are present at this sacrificial feast, and so the selection process begins. But what becomes clear very quickly is that man does not see as the Lord sees. The godly Samuel, he looked on the oldest of Jesse's sons, and he was very impressed with this one. Eliab, he must have looked very impressive. He was tall, handsome, and likely very imposing. And so Samuel, understandably, assumed this was the king standing in front of him. But his description is actually meant to remind us of Saul and how he had been described earlier on much like Saul Eliab looked the part of a king from the outside but like with Saul God had rejected Eliab and his explanation to Samuel of why Eliab was not fit to be king gives us one of the most profound statements about God in all of first Samuel in verse 7 he told Samuel do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Eliab was not only personally rejected, but also served to show Samuel the real reason why Saul had failed. They both looked the part, but externals are not what make a godly king. The heart becomes the determining factor. And the heart in Hebrew is the center of a person's entire being. It's much more than just the emotions. The heart summarizes the the entirety of the body, soul, and mind of a man. Now us, we can only look at one another and judge with their eyes the externals, but not so the eye of the Lord. connects well with Hebrews 4.13 that says, No creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Absolutely nothing in Eliab or Saul was hidden from the Lord. Their very souls were naked before the Lord, and he knew every single dark detail about them. The heart, uh, the Lord looked at the heart of Saul, Eliab, Abinadab, Shema, and four other unnamed sons of Jesse, and he rejected them. And isn't it interesting that the future king had been left to tend the sheep during all this? Jesse didn't even consider his youngest son important enough to bring with him or to mention to Samuel. But once the youngest brother was brought to Samuel, he saw a handsome young man. Now, he may not have been as impressive as Eliah, but he was still gifted in appearance. So clearly, good looks is a gift from God to be used for good. But the key is that if it is unaccompanied by a godly heart, then it becomes worthless. And here stood the youngest son of Jesse before Samuel. And God said in verse 12, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. As Samuel went and anointed this youngest son, the Spirit of God rushed upon him from that day forward. There's no end to the Spirit's presence on him in his life. So long as he lived, the Spirit of God would remain on him. And this isn't talking about his initial conversion, but the Spirit of God falling on and equipping him for the ministry that God had called him to. And notice that it is only at this point in the story when we finally learn this boy's name. Now we are finally told that his name is the name we know so well, David. And the reason for waiting till now is that from now on, David's name is to be associated with the Spirit of God. David's name is never used while he is without this special presence of God resting upon him. God had chosen his anointed one whom he would never reject. Though David will fall into sin many times in his life, the Lord will never leave him. He will never withdraw that spirit from him. The Lord had set his favor upon David, the man after his own heart. So that was the first parallel. Now, point two is favor in man's sight, and this is looking at the rest of the section, which parallels the first. So now we're looking at 14 through 23, and these verses are fascinating to compare with the first half of the chapter. The same threefold pattern is repeated, mirroring the previous section and also building on all of those events. So in verse one, the word of God had come to Samuel. Now we see that the spirit of God departs from Saul. The exact timing of this spirit's departure is not stated. Now, some think that the equipping spirit of God left him when he was rejected in the previous chapter, and that is a possibility. But here, the departure is set in contrast to the spirit falling on David, and therefore it seems more likely that the spirit left Saul and descended on David at the same moment. And now the truth of the matter is that a man sits on the throne of Israel without the Spirit of God resting upon him. Meanwhile, another man has been anointed and equipped by the Spirit to rule over Israel, and yet he's not on the throne. Seems like a problem. Yet this was all part of God's plan. And this is where we just have to note that the providence of God is a fascinating thing to consider. Well, the second part of verse 14 presents us with a problem. That needs a solution. Not only had the Holy Spirit left Saul, but an evil spirit had been sent in its place. And depending on your translation, the spirit might be described as a distressing, a tormenting, an evil, or a harmful spirit. We're also told that the spirit is from God. So there are two options for what this means. First, it could mean that the Lord allowed a demon to afflict Saul, similar to how he allowed Satan to attack Job and his family. And that option, saying that the spirit is from God, means that he allowed an evil demon to go and afflict Saul. Now, a second option is that this could be an affliction that God sent on Saul to punish him. The word for harmful can mean moral evil, as it did in the first option, but it can also just mean human trials and suffering. Plagues in the Old Testament, like the one sent on Egypt, were often referred to with this same word. So in this option, no morally evil agent is involved. God essentially gave Saul a problem, likely a mental health problem. And honestly, I think this is a better option, but both are possible. But whatever, we know for certain that this issue was severe and that it was debilitating for Saul. What is interesting is that Saul does not appear to seek for a solution on his own. He seems so under this curse, as it were, that he can't even figure out he needs help with it. And it's his men who come up with a plan to bring him relief. Now, no doubt they were troubled by Saul's issues, and they were probably scared of him too. And because of this troubling spirit, Saul was paranoid, he was ruthless, and he was unpredictable. And that's not really a good combination of attributes for a king. And so their solution was to turn to the soothing power of music. Now, from the earliest times in human history, people have recognized the power of music in affecting our emotional and our mental state. So whatever these attacks on Saul that he experienced were, listening to music in the middle of them would soothe him, or at least so the plan assumed. Well, Saul, being pleased with their plan, told him to go ahead. And ironically, he asked them to provide a man for him. The word is the same one that God used in verse 1 when he said he had provided a king for himself. So Saul is actually about to help God's plan right along, but of course he had no clue that's what he was doing. All he did was reiterate the point that the man needs to be able to play well. He wants good music. Well, now we can look at the the final phase of this section where the musician is selected. So right away in this conversation, one of Saul's men has just the right guy in mind. He says that he has seen the right man. And the word for seen is the same word that's translated provide in verse 1 and 17. So this man, he gives a glowing recommendation for the candidate. He's a great musician, yes, but he's also brave. He's also a warrior, well-spoken, pleasant company, and most importantly, the Lord is with him. Oh, and by the way, he's the son of Jesse, which as a reader, that's a huge hint. So, God provided a man in verse 1. Saul asked his men to provide a man for him in verse 17. And in verse 18, the plans of God are wrapped up as this man has seen the right man for the job. What makes all this even more surprising is how God can use these human means to bring about his plans. He worked in David to produce a good reputation, the fruit of God's Presence in David was obvious for everyone around him to see. But you have to wonder as a reader reading through this, how did Saul's servant know all these good things about David? Was it someone that just knew David and God's providence? Maybe this man had heard of or even witnessed David's anointing and not knowing the reason for it, assumed it was for this purpose? We don't really know. But David has already had a reputation for godliness and his ability at this point. And that means it's probably just long enough after his anointing that he's had time to build up this reputation. And truthfully, we don't know all the human details of how Saul's servant had knowledge of David. But we do know the ultimate reason for these events. God's plan was being worked out. So Saul, agreeing with his servant's suggestions, sent for David to serve him. And with the Spirit of God resting upon David, he quickly proved himself. To Saul, We're told that Saul loved David. He made him his armor bearer, a coveted position, and he requested that David stay in his service because he had found favor in his eyes. The favor of man was now firmly fixed on David as well as the Lord. And so the man with the reputation of the Lord being with him was brought into the court of Saul to the man who had lost the spirit. David was ultimately loved because of the presence of the Lord being upon him. And with that presence brought blessing to Saul into the court. And this passage provides one of the most vivid examples in Scripture of the providence of God in a situation. The main character in this passage is not Saul, it's not David, and it's not even Samuel. God worked through Samuel to anoint his chosen man. He removed his spirit from Saul because he rejected was rejected, but also afflicted Saul so that he would seek someone to play music for him. He granted one servant knowledge of David so that he would be the one that Saul then brought in. And because the favor of God was on David, he gained the favor of everyone else, including the fallen king that he was to replace. And a result of all of this, David became a member of the king's court. And it was there that he could learn about the duties of kingship and the inner workings of the monarchy in Israel. In God's sovereign plan, Saul willingly brought in and trained the very thing that he was most terrified of, his own replacement. Here's just very clearly stated that we cannot stop or foil God's plans. What what he determines and promises come to pass. God determines that David would be a type of the one to come. In David, we see a picture of the greater David to come, the Messiah. Luke 2.52 says that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The cause of David's growth was not his own strength. It was the result of the Spirit of God resting upon him. And that same Spirit of God is what came and rested on Christ as well. In Luke 4, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he began to say to them, Today the Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In Jesus, we see the blessings of the gospel going forth into the world. The gospel means good news, and it is a good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Faith means freedom from bondage to sin and hell. But that freedom is not libertarianism to just do whatever you want or live however you want. It is a freedom from sin so that we can turn around and serve the Lord. And because the Spirit of God rests upon us... We are sealed as children of God, because the Spirit of Christ dwells in us. we are being sanctified and made holy. And the result of that process is that we must be fighting sin. We must be serving others, and we must be developing a godly reputation. If you are seeking to grow in Christ, then you will have a good name. And if you do not have a good reputation, you need to examine yourself and ask why that is. Are you living? Just like the world around you? Are you immature? Are you selfish? Are you foolish? If any of those are true, then to use Paul's wording from Ephesians 4.20. That is not how you learn Christ. Understand that the purpose of developing a good name is not for your own glory. is to use in service to the Lord. A good reputation opens doors to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. We cannot do that by ourselves. Reputation and favor, they come from the Lord alone. And that means we must seek after the grace of God so that we might be able to serve him well. We must seek the favor of the Lord in Christ and he will use you however he sees fit. He has the power to do this because he is the sovereign Lord who is worthy. The manifestation of his glory is the ultimate goal of all his designs, of all his will. As Philippians 2.10 puts it, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God.